Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and today I don't have with me my co-host Michelle, but I do have our producer Jimmy here in the studio with me. So hi Jimmy. Hi Steph. Um, Jimmy has been dragooned into this podcast because this is the podcast that I have waited my whole life to do and that's because today we're talking about Anne of Green Gables. Um, so I feel like all of my years on earth basically have prepared me for this moment. Um, so Jimmy, why don't you... you Throw me a bone here. Let me talk about Anne of Green Gables. Well, let's begin with the obvious question, which is why do you love Anne of Green Gables so much? Well, <laughs> so I, I um, started reading the Anne of Green Gables books as a child. I think I must have been about nine, possibly a little bit earlier. Um, I can't really remember, although I do have my, my first copy of Anne of Green Gables, which is the most <laughs> precious thing that I own. Um, I, I, I can't actually articulate that. Or, though um, I just took to them as a child they were exactly the kind of the right book for me as a child because I was very I was shy I was bookish um, I was quite sentimental in my own way and I just absolutely devoured all of the Anne books there are eight I read them all I went on to read every book that Montgomery has ever written um, I am actually more of an Emily Bird star fan than an Anne Shirley fan this is this is Montgomery deep cut for all of the kindred spirits and all of those people from the race that knows Joseph. Ha <laughs> another, ha! Another Montgomery deep cut. Um, so my, my heart belongs to Emily Birdstar from the Emily books, but um, I was a huge... I just... I loved them. I loved everything about them. Um, I was a huge Anne Shirley fan too. I just... I loved the characters. I loved the stories. I found them endlessly re-readable. I, re- I, I think I read the Anne books once a year <laughs> until, you know, quite recently um everything about them just worked for me and it's i can't actually put my finger on why and i feel like they're the those books belong to me and and i think they're the reason why i do what i do do you think they're i mean they often have this reputation for being rather girly books. do you find them that they are sort of girly books well i have two answers to that one of which is yes they are um they are in that they're about girls um, they center girls' experiences. They center the experiences of women. Um, they're often, or, or always really, except for a few exceptions, um, about the domestic, about, um, you know, family life, um, negotiating the domestic. So they, they are girl, girlish books in that they always have kind of female protagonists. There's only one Montgomery book that I can think of, apart from a few short stories, that don't have a, a, a female protagonist. So yes, on the one hand, they are quite girly. On the other hand, I don't think they have to be girly. Um, I don't think that they have to be only for a female readership. I think that any young child can relate to the kinds of things that Montgomery wrote about. So she's always, not always, but mostly she's writing about orphans. She's writing about lonely children. She's writing about um, children that might have had a kind of difficult upbringing, um, who might have been struggling um, with certain things, who feel like they're alone. Um, and who are different. So the thing about Anne and a lot of her protagonists is that they're different. They're not the same as the people around them. They have different kind of expectations of the world, different interests. Um, Anne is very bookish and sensitive and romantic, whereas she grows up in a very sort of prosaic world. Um, And the other girls around her don't really understand where she's coming from. And so any child, I think, who feels a little bit like a fish out of water or who feels like that the people around them aren't quite on the same level or, or aren't interested in the same things that they are, which was very much me. I felt like I was the only one. I certainly 
was the only one who was reading as much as I, I was. So I kind of felt like um, Anne spoke to me for that reason. And so therefore I think that it's unfair to kind of relegate them to, to girls' books because they speak to so many kind of children's and young people's experiences. Now, I mean, I have to confess I haven't read any of, of the Anne of Green Gables books. For shame, Jimmy, for I know, shame. for shame, for shame. But um, the re- one of the reasons I did agree to be roped into this particular podcast um, is that I am a self-proclaimed um, expert on the 80s uh, <laughs> adaptation of Anne of Green Gables because I used to watch it religiously as a child. And by religiously, I don't mean every time it was on television because, you know, we're talking back, you know, back in the 80s and 90s now, showing my age, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> back in the day where, you know, you didn't have easy access to any show you wanted via the internet, uh, where you had to wait until they broadcast it on television, uh, mm-hmm. or if, like me, if you really love something, you would go and buy the VHS. I don't even know whether our readers would even remember what a VHS is, but you might yeah. know from, you know, um, the 13 Reasons Why. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. Reasons. Um, so I uh, I started off with borrowing a copy of it from the local library, Yeah. and I watched it, uh, and I was so surprised at how much I enjoyed it that I then devoured the the, the sequel, so they did Anna Green Gables, um, uh, Sullivan Productions did Anna Green Gables, which was a three-hour mm-hmm. adaptation of the first book, and then they did a sequel, which... Uh, I want to talk to you about in, in a little while because I think you have some reservations about the sequel, <laughs> uh, which I think from memory adapts uh, about two of the yeah. following books mm-hmm. uh, and sort of combine them together to look at the, um, the ongoing story. And then there was a terrible 90s um, uh, later on adaptation called The Continuing Story, which I refused to watch because it went to territories I wasn't um, comfortable with, uh, for the story anyway. But the first two I absolutely loved, the Anna Green Gables and the sequel. And what you just said um, before really did resonate with me about the idea that um, because she's an outsider, she does speak mm. to people who didn't feel as if they really belong. Um, and while there wasn't any specific reasons as to why I didn't feel I belong in a particular situation, I never really felt comfortable in mm. social situations. So when I watched these series, I went, yeah, no, I, I actually did really responded very well to them. Uh, and subsequently then I, I bought and the VHS and would watch them pretty much once a month, I think. <laughs> so uh, I was very, very familiar with, with the series and have a deep uh, love of the series as well. What did you think of, of the 80s series? Well, I did really enjoy the first one a lot in the um, when I watched it. I was always a bit of a book purist, um, so I, I did prefer the book. Um, and I, I revisited the book in the way that you revisited the series. Um, but I did enjoy it. I thought it, there were many things that were really, really... Um, great about it. The, the two things that kind of stand out with me, the performances by Colleen Dewhurst as, oh, as Marilla. She's fantastic. And Richard Farnsworth as Matthew, who I can't even really think about without getting a bit teary. No, no. I think that was one of the most heartbreaking moments on, on television uh, yeah. I've ever seen. Uh, um, which probably should yeah. preface by saying there's going to be massive spoilers for this, uh, but you know, as Steph pointed out earlier, you know, this was written in. Was this it? was written in 1908. You've had plenty of time to read it, so <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to feel that I can't spoil it. I'm going to spoil it with wild abandon. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it was a devastating moment um, when uh, Matthew dies. Yeah, you know, I can't even say it now without. Yeah, you know, I know that, <laughs> that terrible scene because I think by the stage that that occurs. Um, I think I was lulled into a false sense of security. Mm. I was thinking, this is such a beautiful, bright, shiny world. Mm. Nothing bad could possibly happen, especially not to such a beloved uh, and gentle and beautiful character like mm. Matthew, who was just nothing but good. Yeah, you know, he, he was, was just, the epitome of goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and he just adored her so much. And mm. so his death was just so devastating on, 
on so many levels. Uh, and I think just that that parting scene, I was thinking the eighty series getting me emotional, just thinking about it really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that last line that he says to her just sort of broke my heart. Yeah. And he's, you know, um, I never wanted a boy, I always wanted you, you yeah. know, from the start. And I was kind of like, oh. Matthew. I know. And then she said, oh, Matthew is when I went, oh, dear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm repeating the characters. <laughs> but that, that, that's a great example of, like, why the, the series works for everybody because, you know, children want to be loved, children want to feel safe, children want to feel cherished for themselves, especially if they feel like they're, you know, on the outside or they're a bit different or they're, they're not fitting in. And and that's such a pure moment of, of like, acceptance and love and community and family. Yeah, and it raises one of the... um major problems, I guess, that we don't really consider or I certainly never considered when I, when I think about the ideas uh, of being an orphan mm. which is that you are effectively rejected, you know, mm. often over and over and over again, and to have someone tell you that actually from the start mm. you were what they wanted mm. it's almost like this uh, redemption of some sort, as if you know you finally found a place where you belong mm. and then have that character die, I mean that was just such, yeah. such a terrible thing to do to a child really. Yeah, no and it, it's quite hard, it's just as heartbreaking in the book as well. Uh, fortunately we had Marilla. Yeah, fortunately we had Marilla and I just, I absolutely really did love those, the, the, um, those performances in the 80s miniseries and I did, did think that the, the first film in particular was very strong. It, it, it had a real, like the, the characters felt very real to me. Um, it was very beautifully shot. Um, the thing that didn't work for me about the first one is how beautiful Megan Follows is. <laughs> She's so beautiful and so when, you know, you have characters telling Anne all the time, you know, you're a skinny little redhead, you're like, are you serious? Like you cannot look at Megan Follows and describe her as anything but absolutely beautiful. I mean, when she's when Rachel Lynn calls her ugly, I'm like, is Rachel Lynn actually blind? <laughs> because the only way you could describe her as ugly is if you were blind. So she was a little bit too beautiful, but she did do a good job as Anne. Um, but she just didn't kind of... You couldn't buy that she was anything but this ethereal beauty. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I suppose, you know, when I, when I watched it, I was just a child. So for me, it was just, um, yeah, everything was believable. Yeah. So if a character said this person wasn't beautiful, I just sort of read, okay, well, obviously they're not the standard <laughs> of beauty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then when later on in the series, you started to see you know, other characters seeing Anne as being much more beautiful. Yeah. Then I thought, well, maybe she has turned to the standard uh, <laughs> of beauty now, even though her looks hasn't really hasn't changed, changed from the beginning to, to the end. But, you know, you kind of get that sense that she's growing up and, and she's mm. really, uh, for me, it was like a, um, a ugly duckling mm. story. You know, she starts off, even though at the beginning she does start off as a swan. <laughs> She's yeah. meant to end at, yeah. as a swan in a way, and she fitted that swan role rather well. You yeah. know, I remember a, a review uh, someone once wrote about um, Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina. Mm. Now, Sabrina is meant to be the, the ugly duckling story, and, and uh, this reviewer said, you know, who on earth can possibly mm. believe Audrey Hepburn <laughs> as an ugly duckling. Yeah, you know, yeah. But if you can't believe her as an ugly duckling, she really shines as the swan. Yeah. You know? um, and I, I kind of felt the same way with Megan Fellows, that she did yeah. uh, quite, shine quite well um, as a swan, and that transformation um, was quite beautiful for, for me to observe, in a way to see through the eyes of the other characters. Mm. That she's, uh, they're seeing more than just her looks. They're seeing, actually, she's got quite a beautiful mm. personality, quite a beautiful soul. And she's growing into her confidence and so forth. Mm. And I do think that, like, a lot of, well, all of I think the the secondary characters were done really well and it's quite faithful to the book which me being a book purist <laughs> I really liked it's just the sequels their wheels fell off for me well let's let's go to the sequels <sighs> because as you know as I said I did also love the sequel not the continuing story but certainly the, the I have to rant part. about the continuing story later okay. by the way okay, <laughs> right, but let's we'll, get one we'll, thing at a time yeah. we'll, we'll give you some space yeah, to yeah. rant about the continuing okay. story but, but let's hear your rant first about the, the sequel well I didn't I didn't hate the sequel as much as I hate the continuing story but 
it did go off book in ways that I didn't really enjoy that mm. much. And I think that that was to create drama around the Gilbert Blythe relationship because mm. it was pretty clear where the story was going that she was going to end up with Gilbert, and mm. that was clear in the first first. Um, well, he he book. disappears for quite a long time. In the, he in the he disappears, yeah. yeah. And then there's and then there's an attempt to kind of ham, ram together kind of different elements of of the later two books. But mm. to me, um, I can understand why they didn't do a kind of strict Anne of Avonlea kind of adaptation because the second the sequel to the book Anne of Avonlea is very much about like her as a teacher um, teaching these provincial classes and I can see how that might have been a bit dull to kind of um, <laughs> to produce as a film especially like in the 80s when you know the idea of being a teacher of like you know a classroom in which you've got everybody from a five-year-old to a 15-year-old might have been a bit odd but I just like the ways that it went off book kind of didn't work for me I felt that there was an unnecessary kind of um drama around the Gilbert Blythe relationship which plays out in a different way in the book um, in Anne of the Island the third book to the series um, and it just the ways that it went off book kind of irritated me in ways that I'm not saying that I would not have accepted any changes but I just didn't feel like the changes were organic to the story mm. they kind of just annoyed me but I didn't hate it mm. I just didn't, I didn't ever feel the need I think I've only seen it once or twice um, and I didn't feel the need to kind of revisit it. I okay. revisited the first movie, the first um, 80s film quite a lot, mm. but I didn't revisit that because it just wasn't my Anne. So my Anne spends, you know, a year or two years or whatever it is um, in Avonlea. Then she goes to, to college. She has all these adventures in college. Anne of the Island is, to me, the greatest college book that I've ever <laughs> read. I mean, the way that Anne, she sets up... So in the books, she goes to college and she sets up house in this place called Patty's Place um, with, like, three of her friends. And they have all these makeup adventures and love affairs and all this. And um, I absolutely loved it. And it gave me these kind of really, really massively um, inaccurate ideas of what, like, university life <laughs> would be about. Um, but it's just that I, I really liked the kind of adventures that they had, which are very different to what's represented in the sequel. So it's not something that I didn't feel like it was something inherent about, you know, the performances or anything like that. It just went off book in ways that I didn't appreciate hmm. um, and couldn't forgive. <laughs> oh, I mean, there was one element of the sequel that um, I didn't enjoy so much, um, and I don't know whether, the, you know, since I haven't read the book, so hmm. maybe you can um, illuminate on, on this particular issue, but there was a romance in the sequel between Anne and uh, Captain Harris, I think his name was, who was the father of one of Anne's student, Emmeline Harris. Yeah, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Um, and I didn't feel that that uh, relation... Well, at the time, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a 12-year-old me, mind you. Uh, yeah. At the time, didn't feel that that um, rang true for me. I, yeah. I, I couldn't... Maybe because he was such, so much older than her. Yeah. <laughs> and back then, you know, anyone older than 30 was ancient yeah. to, to you. So, you know, back then I thought, oh, why would she want to marry some, you know... Some old old man. Yeah. And, you know, really, he was only about 38, I think. Yeah. <laughs> which is quite depressing when I think about it now. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't like that aspect of the relationship. But what I did like, um, and again, maybe th these characters didn't actually appear in the books either, is um, Captain Harris's mother, uh, who was played fantastically by the wonderful actress uh, Wen uh, Wendy Hiller, I think her name is, uh, who originated the role of um, Eliza Doolittle in, in the Pygmalion film. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and she was just wonderful. I mean, I love stories about cantankerous old women who yeah. you know have actually have a softer side uh, and she just played that role so perfectly and I loved the relationship between Anne and her uh, and also uh, between Anne and um, 
her daughter or Captain Harris's sister, whose name completely eludes me right now, uh, who's also a, a spinster, shy, reclusive woman. And mm. Anne sort of draws her out in the same way that she draws the daughter out as well. Those characters as such don't appear in the books, but they're mm. kind of amalgams of characters that are. So in Anne of Windy Willows, um, which is the fourth book, I told you I was an Anne expert, <laughs> um, there is a character that's like that, that Anne mm. draws out, who is a, a spinster character who is quite bitter about life and mm. um, who Anne kind of takes under her wing and, and mm. you know, sh- shows her that there's a possibility for a better life out there. Um, and there's plenty of cantangrous of, of women <laughs> characters that I think are being rolled into that character. Yeah. But certainly that character doesn't exist and that relationship doesn't exist and that's the primary reason, I think, that relationship um, that I didn't like um, the the sequel. There is, Anne does have a kind of boyfriend in Anne of the Island. Mm. Um, his name is Royal Gardner, <laughs> which I always kind of thought was a bit lame, like, his name is Royal? Um, anyway, um, but she, she breaks up with him um, when he proposes, actually, which is kind of awkward. Um, which so, is what Captain Harris does. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm guessing it, it has it, been amalgamated. Yeah, it has too. been amalgamated, but he's, yeah. he's a very different character. He's not old, he's not no. um, a father, he's a, a university student that she knows. Um, and he's kind of, and he represents kind of Anne's romance expectations. You know, she's got these expectations that this tall, dark, and handsome man will, you know, sweep her off her feet. Which is what Captain Harris represents. Yeah, in, exactly. In the series. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So they've changed it slightly, but kept it, kept that kind of romance spirit. Yeah. Spirit, yeah. Um, but I didn't really know why he had to be like a father and so much older than her. It was a bit weird. I think it was just probably to draw in the Emmeline Harris and um, yeah. the. Um, not remember her name, yeah, the, the, sister. The, the grandmother. Yeah, oh, the, the grandmother. The grandmother. Yeah. Harris into that story as well because I think po- possibly they wanted a role for, for Wendy Hiller to play. Yeah. Uh, and she did it so well that... Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so it sounds like from everything you've described they have sort of amalgamated a whole bunch of different yeah. characters together to continue that story but yeah. uh, maybe not spread those characters out because possibly for a, a miniseries you know, there wasn't as much um, room to, to do that. Yeah, they've kind of amalgamated three books into one. Mm. So that's um, Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Willows. Mm. So they've kind of wrapped a lot of storylines from those three books into one and kind of moved them around a bit. Mm. Mm. And I think, you know, the reason, the main reason, I have to say, that I loved the sequel is because, you know, at heart I am a romantic uh, and I loved <laughs> the way that it ended. Uh, and that was sort of my reservation for the continuing story because I thought, you know, and um, Anne Green Gables, the sequel, ended on such a wonderful yeah. note. You know, uh, her realization that you know the one she loved the most was actually Gilbert, and he's always there been Gilbert. And he's been there by her side the entire the time. time. And in fact, yeah. he proposed to her very early on. Yeah. Uh, in, in in the sequel, and she that, that happens him. in the books too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and then that realization that you know the thing dearest to her was the thing that was always closest to her sure, at the time, yeah. and you know, she went looking for herself when really she should have just yeah opened turned her eyes around. And, yeah, yeah turned around to see. Uh, and so I loved that idea, um, and I loved Gilbert from the first um, yeah. movie, so, you know, carrying that on through. And also a part of me wanted her to come back to Green Gables because I missed Marilla. Yeah. I mean, it, it's certainly kind of, I don't know, taking her away from Green Gables is always difficult. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that was my reservation for moving on to the continuing story, which I refused to watch and still now refuse to watch. You, I believe, have massive rants about that. I have massive rants about it. Okay. Um, first of all, again, unnecessary complication in the, the story with Gilbert, right? So they, you know, they try and make drama where there isn't, doesn't need to be drama. And secondly, um, again, this is part of like my book purist thing. Um, so the last Anne book, um, Rilla of Ingleside, um, is, in my opinion, the best Anne book. 
Um, it takes place during the First World War. In fact, it is the only Canadian book written about the home front oh. in the First World War. Um, so focusing on women's experiences of the First World War, it's obviously based on Montgomery's experiences. And her daughter, it's about her daughter, who is now, she she starts the book at the age of 15. Her name is Rilla, Bertha Marilla Blythe. <laughs> um, so she starts the book at 15 and ends the book at 19. Um, so it's about her and her experiences. Anne is an older woman. She's in her late 40s, early 50s. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's sad. It's happy. It's it's wonderful. I really think, like, I actually experienced the First World War through that book. So, you know, when it comes time to Remembrance Day, I'm like, oh, but the Blights. And, yeah, then I have to remind myself that they're fictional. Um, so I didn't kind of, I, I mean, that book is so perfect that I would love to see that book da- adapted on its own. And so the moving of Anne into a First World War context didn't work for me. Um, the way they tried to complicate and, you know, make into a kind of soap opera her relationship with Gilbert, even mm. though um, there's, there's, there's tensions in her relationship to Gilbert in the books that happen after their marriage. Anne of Ingleside has a kind of... The last section of that book is about her kind of worrying that Gilbert's fallen out of love with her. Um, but... Um, the way that they kind of added the soap opera element to that and, you know, I can't even remember what happens. There's all these, you know, he's presumed dead and she's on the battlefield and she's a nurse, isn't I she? Think and... I think Cameron Daddo's in it, isn't he? Yeah, Cameron Daddo's <laughs> in it. Like, what? Really? Wasn't he meant to be the uh, sort of alternative love La- The, the, the rival. Yeah, I'm the like, rival, what sorry. is happening? Why is Cameron Daddo there? Anyway, um, and it's really odd. Actually, there is, you know, what I find most disturbing. It's a deleted scene, but it still exists. You can look it up on YouTube. Yeah. It's Anne of Green Gables, Anne, of, Anne Shirley and um, and Gilbert Blythe's um, first night as a married couple. Oh. So it's a sex scene. It's oh, no. so wrong. <laughs> it's not. It's not like it's not at all um, explicit. It's just like soft focus of them taking each other's clothes off. And I, I can't believe that I've seen it. And it's not. You don't even see any kind of nudity or anything like that. But just knowing that it exists makes me angry because it's not a. Yeah, oh, so wrong. It's not about that. It's you know, it's it's well, the, the romance is for young girls. They're not supposed to be like sexy sex. Well, this is an interesting <laughs> uh, reaction, I think, from from both of us. You know, when you said that scene, we, I think we both just went, ah, oh, oh, imagining. Wrong. Uh, but why is that an issue? I mean, you're, oh, I know, presumably I know. two people getting married. They, should, you know, yeah, I'm sure they, they have had, six children. That's so. six, obviously they had sex more than once. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. but why is it so traumatic for for us? Do I you don't think, know. For, to imagine yeah. Anne and Gilbert having sex. I think it's because you know they they're so bound up in my childhood, and they're they're so bound up in this like innocent kind of like image of romance that wasn't about that. Um, <laughs> and I just and I just kind of think that I didn't need to see it. Like of all. You know, I have no problems with sex scenes and things, but I have a problem with sex scenes in that. And it just it just didn't seem organic or real to the story. Mm. I mean, I, I don't even have, like, a problem with kind of more gritty kind of, as we'll talk about when we come to the new adaptation, mm. I don't have a problem with a particular scene from the new adaptation, which we'll, I hope we'll get to talk about. Mm. Um, but I just it did bother me. And I just felt like that they tried to stretch out the Gilbert drama because they'd already gotten engaged at the end of it and... Um, the sequel Mm. Um, it was like they had to kind of go back and complicate things so that we were hanging out for the resolution again (laughs) and I'm like but there's already been a resolution and I think really of Ingleside shows that there was other stories that you could tell that are related to Anne but not about Anne Mm. Um, and it's such a brilliant book it's so it's really a wonderful book that Mm. I would I mean and you can read and appreciate it even if you don't 
you know, it's a standalone, really. You don't have to know Anne of Green Gables particularly. Mm. Um, so it kind of just annoyed me that they ruined all of that and didn't focus on Rilla. And, I mean, yeah. Ken Ford, who is kind of Rilla's love interest in Rilla of Ingleside, is just the ultimate romantic hero, really. <laughs> I mean, he should be, like, in a museum, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think they try to rectify that whole... Um... Uh, issue you were talking about by having a, a spin-off series, which I didn't really get into, um, called Road to Avonlea. Yeah. Did, did you ever watch any of those? Um, the Road to Avonlea is based on two other books of Montgomery's, oh, okay. which are called The Story Girl and The Chronicle... No. The Story Girl and... Oh, God, I can't remember. <gasps> no. <gasps> the Golden the Road. The Golden Road. The Golden Road. It came to me. It's about to say. Um, yeah, no, I did, I did like that. Um, they actually... Those books weren't set in Avonlea. They oh, okay. changed them to being set in Avonlea so they could kind of capitalise on the Anne connection. Hmm. But there were to- two totally standalone novels. The Story Girl was the first. The Golden Road, which is about the same kids, is the second. Um, I, I did really like that. Mm. Um, and what they that series did... I haven't seen the whole series because it was mm. hard to get in Australia. Yeah, it was. But um, what the series did is it actually dramatised a lot of Montgomery short stories. Mm, okay. So there's two Avonlea-related um, short story collections, which are called Chronicles of Avonlea and Further Chronicles of Avonlea. Um, and the stories are kind of... And so the, the series Chronicles of Avonlea is a sort of mix of those two short story collections plus the story girl and the golden road. And so it gives you an opportunity to, talk, to like adapt more of Montgomery short stories. Mm. So I quite enjoyed that, but I haven't seen all of them. And I did absolutely adore the actress who played Sarah Stanley, who okay. was the story girl in um, in the Story Girls. So yeah, I thought that was that was lovely. Oh, okay. mm. Now I was actually hoping it would be more of a, a spin-off, looking at some of the characters whose story I never kind of um, got to understand uh, because the series wasn't interested in their stories. Um, so characters like um, what was her name, Miss Stacy, and first yeah. great. Teacher, yeah, because uh, I, I always thought it was such a shame that we we never hear from Miss Stacy again after yeah. you know after she leaves Avonlea, and I thought, well, what happened to her character? You know, she was um, such an inspiration for Anne and sort of changed her life so. Don't much. worry, they stay in touch. They stay in touch. They stay in touch. <laughs> it's all good. Maybe because you know we're teachers now, so we, we yeah, like no, to think we always we gravitate towards the teacher characters. Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, so let's move on then to the grittier. Version, which is the the new Netflix um, series and with an E. What did you think of that one? Well, I I'm like I was totally petrified. Sorry, can't speak. (laughs) Petrified to watch it because I'm such a as you have known now that I've been talking for half an hour about this. Um, (laughs) such a book purist and so kind of fussy about it. And I had read that it was a grittier Anne, and that it was about kind of excavating the kind of darker parts of the book. So I came in prepared to not like it, and I actually did like it a lot, except when we got to the last episode, um, which we'll, we will talk about. I did. I really enjoyed a lot of elements of it. There were some elements that annoyed me, but um, I really liked... I, I, I really actually appreciated that it did try to bring out that darkness, because what what people overlook about Anna Green Gables, because it's such a sentimental novel, and because it's you know children's literature, beloved children's literature, people kind of don't notice the fact that it's about a girl who's been orphaned as a baby, who has never had any kind of love, affection or care in her life, um, who has been farmed out, really, to a, a bunch of women with a lot of children who treat her as an indentured slave, really. And um, beat her, and, yeah, 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 and who are violent towards her and who use her to take care of their children when she's nothing but a child herself. Um and she's and you know she's had periods with two different women, and then she's ended up, you know, intermittently back in, in and out of an orphanage. 
So she's had an awful life. Anne comes to Green Gables having no experience of any kind of parental care or affection, any kind of love in her life. The only kind of emotional solace she's had is her imagination. Um, so there is a lot of darkness and grit to Anne of Green Gables, but the thing is it's there in the fork, it's there before the action starts. Mm. And the reverberations are felt through the entire book if you're if you're a careful reader. Um, so I actually did appreciate that it played up those elements, which the the series hinted towards the the eighty series hinted towards, but didn't kind of get to as yeah. much. Yeah, I mean the the eighty series definitely um, I think did uh, made suggestions in the form of Anne's objection to working. Uh, there was there was one scene. Uh, I can think of in particular, as I said, you know, I've watched the, mm. the series so many times, where she, uh, after Marilla uh, takes her back, mm-hmm. um, she, uh, she's about to be given to uh, another local woman, Mrs. Blewett. Mrs. Blewett, yes. Uh, who has, you know, two sets of twins or something like yeah. that. And, and just they're looking horrified. Like, you, yeah. know, you know, twins are her lot in life, I think she says. Yeah. Um, because she's absolutely horrified by this you know, the idea of having to look after so many children. Um, and she mentioned I think to Marilla after Marilla sort of says well actually you know what I I, I don't know whether I want to mm. give her up yet I, I should talk to Matthew first you know and I think mm. that was a moment I sort of fell in love with Marilla because I thought mm. here she is this rather cold-hearted mm. woman uh, and then suddenly you, you see that there's actually depth and complexity to her that mm. she's not willing to sacrifice this girl she doesn't know mm. to a life that she knows is probably a lot worse than, than the girl deserves mm. um but yeah, and then Anne explains to her that you know she's she looked after so many twins um, mm. that you know she's had a lot of traumatic experiences looking after twins, uh, and that's suggested in the eighty series. But in the recent Netflix mm-hmm. uh, adaptation, there's a there's some wonderful uh, visual devices they've used, um, almost to suggest her. It's almost like PTSD or something. Yeah, like you know, she she actually just freezes mm. in the moment and she's lost mm. in in some of these memories, some of the trauma. That has happened to her, um, and, and I think that was one of the moments where, where it occurs, where she mm. just sort of had a had a flashback to a rather ironic, str- almost twistedly funny, um, but at the same traumatizing scene where um, her adopted uh, or her foster father was beating her, mm. and then dies of a heart attack while beating yeah, her. Yeah. <laughs> and you're there going, okay, well that's either you know poetic justice or yeah. or some form of strange um, comedy, but she you know. But that also added to her trauma. Yeah. Added to her guilt that, you know, she... She was responsible. Yeah, yeah she was yeah. responsible for his death because she was there being mm-hmm. beaten by him when when he died. Uh, and that was also shown in the 80s um, as the opening scene mm. um, where the, the widow actually blames Anne mm. and says, you know, this is nothing but your own, your fault. You know, mm. you did this. Yeah. You know, as it's Jeff, well, you know, you did this because you were there for my husband to beat. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know, yeah. it, was, it was such a cruel and, and terrible world, and and I think I like the Netflix series for actually showing that mm. darker side, which was always implied but never really mm. shown. So you really actually got to see and uh, and experience possibly what it might have been like to to have been an orphan mm. in that particular period. Yeah, and there are a lot of scenes that are kind of not well, not explicitly represented that way in the book, but are clearly like the kinds of things that would happen to mm. you know a poor orphan girl who is, you know, used as a, as a form of cheap labour um, and and that are, you know, fleshed out a lot more in the in and with an E. So I really, you know, that didn't bother me. The darkness of the series didn't bother me. I didn't um, I didn't feel that it was taking um, Anne in a direction that it wasn't already. I just felt like they were bringing to light things that were there in the book mm. that, um, that weren't necessarily as present um, 
in the in the 80s series and i think that that's really true to life of montgomery like i said before um you know many of montgomery's books are about um you know poor orphans um isolated children i mean the emily books that i referred to before which is a trilogy of books um they start with emily losing um her beloved father so she's um her mother has died in childbirth and um or very soon afterwards and Emily's father dies in like the first chapter of the of Emily of New Moon. So they're always about um about isolated children, suffering children, abused children. And and what N with an E does is bring that to the forefront. Um there were things that um I also liked in N with an E that weren't necessarily in the books, which I thought I wasn't going to, but I did. Um one of them is actually Anne getting her first period. Oh. I know. I would have thought that, like, if you had told me beforehand that they were going to have that in the series, I would have said, "My God, that's such so wrong." But it actually, like, the the way I suppose it, it makes sense. The way it played out was so kind of real to a girl of that age and in that time, and her complete kind of confusion and her feeling that, "Oh my God, I'm dying," or you know, <laughs> "What is happening to me?" Like, I can't account for this mm. in any way. Um, and also, it's the kind of thing that Montgomery couldn't write about. Yes, but, of course. Yeah, there's no way she could have put that in a book. Mm. But um, but it, it just played out so real to me. Mm. Um, and I really liked... Um, I really loved the actress. I don't actually know her name. It <laughs> escapes me. But I really loved the actress they got to play Anne. I'm not saying that she's an ugly child. I'm not saying that at all. But when Mrs. Lind tells, says to her, you know, you're freckled, you're thin, you're ugly... She look. She is those things. She is very thin. She's very freckly. She looks more like a real human child. She than, does. Yeah, she's a wonderful actress. Uh, she is her. a wonderful actress. And but but I think you know at the same time there is um, actually potential there for her to. I don't know what she actually looks like in real life because I've only ever seen the first episode, mind you. Yeah. Um, but I almost feel a sense as if they, uh, the creators are messing around with us a little bit. Yeah, how so? I, I think you know the the actress is probably a lot more attractive. Yeah, probably than, <laughs> than what they're they're showing her to be. I think I think they're sort of you know um, making her up to to look yeah. a little bit um, more drab than what she is, so that when the transformation does happen for her, she'll you know it'll be a little bit more believable. Yeah, I well, guess. she's she is very um, she looks the way like the way Annie's described in those early sections of the book. She's very thin. She's very she's very pale. She's very freckly. Um, She's dressed unattractively. She does look uh, like a, a real human girl. Like, she doesn't have the kind of ethereal beauty of the Anne of the 80s series. Um, and so you can see, like, when Mrs. Lynn comes in and, and um, critiques her appearance, you you can see why that would be both something that somebody would say to, to her and also how devastating it would be. Mm. Um, I think she's a really great actress. I think she captures Anne perfectly. And I was actually talking to a, a friend of mine yesterday, and she pointed out that, um, when Anne has a, a moment of happiness, the actress who plays Anne, her face lights up in this way that is very kind of expressive, and she she looks she and she does look transformed in the mm-hmm. way that Anne Anne's emotions play out on her face in the book. So she's she's very well done. And as much as I loved Matthew and Marilla of the eighty series, I do really um, also love the Matthew and Marilla of the new series. Mm-hmm. I thought they were really well done. Um, I thought that um, Marilla in particular was really well done. Um, she's got that kind of um, button-down kind of strictness, but also the sense of humour of Marilla, yeah. which and is a really endearing thing about Marilla is a sense of yeah. humour. And, and there's a warmth to, to Marilla that's hidden you know, very, 
very much hidden underneath all that layer of um, yeah. sort of stiff coldness. Um, and, and, you know, Marilla was actually always one of my favourite characters because you know, she's one of those characters who the more you get to know, the more you understand the character, the more um, beautiful mm. as a character she, she appears to be because, you know, she is really quite a, a complex uh, and fascinating um, but very generous yeah. character in, in so many ways. Um, but she's also, you know, she has her flaws, and I think that's what mm. I love about Marilla. Mm. Matthew I adore, but, you know, he was too good to be true. Matthew is just the embodiment of goodness. Yeah, he's yeah. so good. He's so, you know, nice that I thought, you know, uh, it, it's very rare that you'll meet anybody like Matthew. But Marilla is somebody I could sort of see yeah. in our world, and, and I, I love Marilla for that particular reason. Um, now, you mentioned you had issues with well, the last I mean, episode. The, okay, so I had issues that are earlier as well. So my issues from earlier in the season is I didn't like, in the, maybe the second or third episode, I can't remember which, um, there's a scene in the book where Anne loses Marilla's amethyst brooch, mm-hmm. um, and they play that out in Anne with an E as well. But in this case, Marilla is so incensed by what she considers... She sends her off. She, yeah, yeah, she sends her away. She sends her back to the orphanage. And I didn't buy Marilla acting like that because by that time, Marilla and Anne have already bonded. Um, mm. And it makes Marilla look flighty and it makes it Marilla look mean in a way yeah. that Marilla's not mean. She's many things, but she's not mean. No, yeah, and, and that's um, that's probably why I, I was very hesitant to watch the next episode because it ended on that mm. cliffhanger where Matthew's you know, desperately riding to yeah. uh, catch the train, but of course he misses the train and you know, she's yeah. been sent off to the orphanage. And I thought... This didn't happen in the eighties series, you know. This is, you know, this yeah. is the purest in me, except I'm, I'm purest for the wrong reason. I'm purest for the eighties <laughs> yeah, series no, that instead of the novel. Yeah, certainly doesn't happen in the novel. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, you know, a part of me felt a little bit betrayed by that story because um, it maligned um, Marilla's character in a way that I didn't feel was mm. true to her character. Yeah, you know, she, um, I, th- I think, you know, even if she did go through with it, at some stage she probably would have changed her mind. Mm. So, I mean, I, I don't think she would have sent her back to such a cruel. No. Environment, especially not after she has started to yeah. well, quite like this, this girl. Well, that's the point of the Mrs. Blewett anecdote, you know, yes. where, where, where she goes to see, and that happens in the book and, and with Anne and, and with an E as well, mm. um, where she says, I wouldn't give a dog to that Blewett, to that Blewett woman. woman. Yeah. yeah. So she, she understands fully what she's sending her back to. So, she, so yes, that annoyed me about the, the recent series, mm. that section. And then the next episode became like an adventure narrative of like getting Anne mm. back and, you know, Matthew kind of, on the on his horse, kind of you know, and getting on the boat to, oh, across yeah. to the mainland and all of this sort of stuff, which I, mm. which kind of alienated me. When they got back to Green Gables, things got better. Okay, and I really liked actually another thing I really liked about it is that they're really kind of good at and with an ease good at at kind of bringing to light all of these secondary characters. Mm. So. You know, people like Ruby Gillis, Prissy Andrews, Jane Andrews, um, Rudy Spurgeon, who is like this dorky friend of Gilbert's, who is the the kind of most secondary of secondary characters appears in Anne with an E. And I was like, wow, talk about another Montgomery deep cut. Here's Moody Spurgeon. <laughs> um, and I really loved the way they did Aunt Josephine, mm-hmm. Josephine Barry, um, who becomes a kind of mentor to Anne. And later on in, in Anne with an E, we see her kind of grappling with the idea of romance versus career which becomes a kind of theme in Anne, um, in the later Anne books. Um, but to get back to another thing that I didn't like, which came up in the last episode, is that the last episode ended really weirdly for me um, because, as happens in the book, Green Gables is threatened because um, there's been a banking crisis mm. and 
um, Matthew is sick and doesn't can't um, sustain Green Gables. And so in the book, that's the reason why Anne doesn't go to college straight away, but she goes into teaching, yep. and she becomes a schoolmistress at the Avonlea School. Um, in the in the series, they have her selling all their possessions. Mm. She goes to Carmody, sells all their possessions. There's this weird kind of theft narrative, <laughs> and then there's these two kind of these two robbers that rob her of, of a bunch of things end up being boarders at Green Gables at the end. And like, there's this kind of and she opens the door, and there's these two kind of robbers, thieves. <laughs> thieves there and they're about to kind of move into Green Gables and they kind of leer at her and I'm like where is this going like I don't understand where what they're doing with that and there's Mm. a suggestion that those two are going to be like the primary antagonists of like presumably what will be the next season so it's like I don't understand what that is um so I didn't really at all understand where that was going Mm. um there's a kind of um complication with the Gilbert stuff that isn't in the book but I didn't mind that happens in the last episode where, in which um, Gilbert's father dies, which um, happens in the book but not quite at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I just didn't know where they were going with it at the end. I felt like I could cope with most of the um, differences from the book up until that point. I was mm. just that, that kind of thieves showing up at Green Gables and they're going to kind of, I don't know, be troublesome mm. tenants of Green Gables. That just struck me as... as random and not in a good way <laughs> so that kind of annoyed me but um up until then i really enjoyed the series actually i really i watched it as you i think i told you in like one weekend yes. <laughs> and just kept like pressing next episode next episode next episode because it was lovely to just be back with those characters <laughs> like i just loved like and like i said you know hanging out with like you know dana barry and ruby gillis and it just it was it was nice it's 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 a happy place and the the scene in which um, Diana and her get drunk on um, the raspberry cordial. <laughs> yes. It's just worth its weight in gold every time. Do you think the reason for the ending of the first season occurs as a result of this you know, sort of cliffhanger generation that we're living in? Everything has to end on a cliffhanger yeah. to draw you into the second season, so sort of leave suggestion, you know, possibly Game, Game of Thrones can be yeah. for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, for drawing, uh, for ending on such a, a, a violent or, you know, implied violent note that mm. we immediately want to know what happens next but interestingly enough it has the uh, opposite effect on, on you where mm. you're thinking well I don't know if I want to watch, watch the second season now because yeah. well, where's this going well, yeah, that's where's it right. taking me yeah I do think that they, they give in to that and I think that 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 storyline at the beginning of the series with Marilla sending her back mm. is another kind of manifestation of that yeah. like that cliffhanger like we've got to keep give people a reason to keep watching whereas mm. I feel like the thing with Anna Green Gables is that there's no real... I mean, there's, there's there's moments of tension, but there are no cliffhangers. But the reason you go back is because you love the characters and you want to yes. know what find, what happens next. Yeah. And so by by having such a dramatic kind of, um, in my view, ridiculous cliffhanger, mm. it kind of sold out the story in ways that really annoyed me. Yeah, I suppose, you know, that's that's why I loved the, the 80s adaptation so much because it ended on such a, for me, a, a beautiful note, not the sequel to the first one, which you do yeah. agree on. Yeah. Um, in that it ended on that lovely note um, that Gilbert actually gave up his post yeah. you know, at, at the Avenue School and says, you know, you can take this and I'll take I'll take White's end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, that was sort of the moment that Anne really looked at Gilbert and thought, you know, um, mm. he's somebody, you know, he's, yeah. he's really somebody. Uh, and it was it was a lovely way to to end mm. that particular um, series, and made me really want to watch the next series because I thought, oh great, I could see what happens to them 
next yeah, now. Next it's, not a, it's not a cliffhanger idea where it's like, oh, now what's going to happen? No drama. Yeah, you no know, drama. What, is, you know, yeah. thieves in Green Gables. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love the idea of a text can be self-contained without leading on to another text, but still make you want to read the next one. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what did for me it was kind of like well now I get to find out what else happens to Anne and Gilbert and Marilla yeah. and all those characters well that's exactly what the books did and that's why you keep moving through six or through eight of them um, some people say that there are only six Anne books because <laughs> the two later ones are about her children's generation but mm-hmm. I count them um, so yeah that's exactly what the books do they don't leave you with any cliffhangers they, they wrap up their plots but they keep you going because you want to you encounter those characters again and so I feel like there's there's unnecessary kind of dramatic um, kind of escalation in that in the way that it ends. Mm. But I think there are look there are many things to recommend and with an E um, still. Um, I just think that perhaps it's it's trying a bit too hard at times to yeah. be gritty. I mean, there's some parts where I feel like it really benefits. Like they they really flesh out. Jerry, who is the hired boy that the the yes, I thought that was quite out. interesting because you know I don't yeah. remember him from the eighties series at all, and suddenly here here's this little boy who had uh, a, a French Canadian accent. Yeah, he's French Canadian. Yeah, yeah uh, and I thought, oh, who, who's this character? And then when his name came, I was like, why do I know that name? I, when, I think he's mentioned a few times yeah, in the eighties series, yeah. but we never actually got to see him in the eighties series. And yeah. here he is as an actual boy who's just trying to do his job. Yeah, and he's, he actually becomes a huge character in, oh, especially the, like, the last two episodes. Mm. Um, and he's certainly in the book, but again, he's, he's sidelined in the book because he's, he's a servant. He's yeah. of the servant class. And, and it's actually quite interesting to think about, like, the politics of class in, mm. in Montgomery's books because, you know, she's, she's very much on the side of the poor and the dispossessed, but then she has, like, French characters as, like, the lower classes, like the French Canadian mm. characters, are like the lowest of the low, and they're only for servants, and you don't kind of associate with them. Mm. Um, so I think they're trying to remedy the kind of class politics, the problematics of the class politics, by bringing Jerry more to the front mm. um, in the series. And I quite enjoyed that. I liked the little boy that played um, that played Jerry. I thought he was quite funny, and I liked that idea that Anne does have a, a kind of a child comparable age in the house, and of course they're going to you know chat. And you know, talk about how annoying things are or whatever. Um, so that's going to be that. That's kind of felt to me a nice addition, mm. not a annoying addition. So there were lots of things that they added that didn't bother me at all, and that was mm. one of them. Well, maybe the second series will hopefully redeem or solve some of those issues yeah. um, that they had issues with. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, Montgomery as an sure. author and, and what you, what you know of her? Because I know very little actually about Montgomery. Well, Montgomery had a she had a really sad life actually. Mm. So a couple of years ago, about two years ago, um, her family actually revealed she committed suicide, which had not been known. Oh wow! Um, so uh, she left a suicide note, but it was suppressed by the family. And mm. I mean, you know, she's got living descendants. She de- she died in forty two, okay. nineteen forty two. So that's not, you know. Uh, it wasn't 100 years ago, so she's got, you know, a lot of family that's still around mm. who remember her. Um, so she had a, she had a quite, um, she had a quite a, a happy uh, childhood, I suppose. Her parents, um, her mother died, but her father was alive but didn't live with her. She lived with her grandparents. Um, and she ended up being a carer for her grandmother who was a very strict woman. I think she was Marilla without the humanity. Um, I think she was a much stricter... Fantastic way of describing it. Yeah, yeah, I think she's just... I think she was very much a Marilla character but without the softness of Marilla. Mm. 
Um, and so she she cared for her grandmother for years and years. She got married quite late for the time. Um, she had two children, two boys. Um, her she was unhappily married. Um, her husband was quite mentally ill. She moved on marriage off Prince Edward Island and went to live on um, in Nova Scotia. Uh, she was a her husband was a parson, so she was a parson's wife, and she had a lot of like responsibilities that took her away from writing. Um, and so she was quite an unhappy woman, and she actually grew to really hate Anne, um, which is sad. As a lot of authors tend to do when they spend so much time yeah. you know, with a particular character. I mean, um, Conan Doyle's yeah. specialty certainly did. He hated it. Hated For his entire life, he hated Sherlock and yeah. really resented this character that he had, he had created, almost like this monster yeah. that he had created. Um, but the public loved him so much. and So I'm guessing Montgomery would have felt the same way. You know, the public loved Anne so much. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I came across a rather interesting little bit of trivia because I was looking, you know, before this podcast, I was looking up Anna Green Cables because I was thinking I would like to revisit the eighties yeah. series again. <laughs> uh, and I thought, oh, I need to buy it on on Blu-ray because yeah. you know, everything's on Blu-ray for me. Uh, and I cannot find, I can find the first one, uh, but I cannot find the sequel anywhere. Yeah. Except in Japan. Yeah, and it's huge in Japan. And it's huge in Japan. You know, the Japanese mm-hmm. absolutely adore it. You know, they, they've got the, the complete, this beautiful box set of the AV series, yeah. which has the entire Anna Green Gables um, film or, or miniseries. Uh, and there's also an anime uh, mm. series of, of, I think, the entire um, Anne series as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they absolutely adore it. And, you know, what is it about the story that just really mm. uh, resonates? She's always Japanese? been big in Japan. Um I, there is some scholarship out there on, on Anne fans um, <laughs> and the, the Anne fandom in Japan. I think it's uh, like a cultural nostalgia, even though like it's a setting that's far away from mm. Japan and, and is very culturally different. But I think that there is a nostalgia for that kind of time. You mm. know, So Anne is set in like the late 19th century uh, up until the last books are set. Mm. The last book um, finishes in 1918. So it's it's the turn of the 20th century you know, there's a kind of um, nostalgia and, and love of that kind of bucolic mm. um, environment of Prince Edward Island. It's a very beautiful place. It's, yes. It kind of harkens back to a simpler time. So I think there's a lot of cultural nostalgia that's going on there. Um, as well as that kind of, you know, like I was saying before when we were talking about whether they're girly, that those, th- those kind of like growing up, you know, development, child isolation which a lot of Japanese uh, respond quite well to. Yeah. They, they always felt, you know, I remember uh, reading somewhere once um, about the Japanese population uh, being a rather uh, introverted society. Mm. And people say, well, they're very surprised to find that out because, you know, when you think about Japanese, you think about Japanese youth who have, you know, blue hair, wild hair and, and, wild clothes, hair and yeah. clothes and yeah. are so out there and everything. Uh, and somebody pointed out, yes, but that's the youth. Yeah. That's the rebellious yeah. youth of that culture when they become adults they're no longer like that that's that only occurs in a very short period when mm. they really feel as if they don't belong to that mm. society so they start acting out in ways that are in complete opposition mm. to that society so I, I suppose you know a character like Anne would speak yeah know, quite well to um, to people like that who felt they were very much you know um, outside of that society and remember, Anne does try to dye her hair. She does. Green. <laughs> she goes well, she green. Doesn't, well, she doesn't intend, <laughs> no, she doesn't intend to, to be green. But, yeah. Uh, she, she does end up with green hair. Temporarily, of Temporarily. Yeah. And then she, of course, cuts her hair. And, yeah. And then yeah. it goes, a, ni- a real pretty organ. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we're coming close to the end, but I just wanted to ask one final question. Um, mm-hmm. 
to test your, your love this particular um, series. Who is uh, your favourite character or what is your favourite moment in this entire series? In the Anne series specifically? In the Anne series specifically, yes. Um, my favourite character is the daughter Rilla from Rilla of Ingleside. I think she's a wonderful character. She's got, um, she's a bit different from Anne. She's less bookish. She's a little bit kind of more, she starts off um, Rilla of Ingleside as being very flighty. She's very mm. vain. She's very beautiful. Um, and she is a flirt and um, she really enjoys that kind of flirting, dancing, etc. So she's quite different from Anne, but her experiences during the war really mature her. It's just, mm. it's another story of a girl maturing. Yeah. Okay, so it returns to that kind of um, paradigm from the original Anne of Green Gables. Um, and her story is so beautiful, and she's such a wonderful character, and she's funny, and she's smart, and she's resourceful. Um, I absolutely adore Rilla. Um, and my favourite moment in the series... Oh, God, this is a really hard one. Um, any scene with Miss Cornelia Bryant. So she is this... I told you I'm going really full deep Montgomery wow. here. So Miss Cornelia is a secondary character who first turns up in Anne's House of Dreams, which is the fifth book in the series, uh, which is a book in which Anne and Gilbert get married and have their first two children. Um... And she's another cantankerous old lady. Oh, I love so, cantankerous yeah, old lady. So, yeah, I know. You would love Miss Cornelia. I she would. is um, she's a Presbyterian. She absolutely hates Methodists. And she spends <laughs> most of the... I mean, and I didn't even know when I was a child growing up. I was like, what's the difference between a Methodist and a Presbyterian? I didn't even know there were two things. Um, she absolutely hates Methodists. She spends most of her time talking about how much she hates men and how much she hates Methodists. Um, so she spends most of her time kind of complaining. Um, and also making things. She's, she's you know, always sewing and all of this. And she's so funny. And just any moment in which she's in the scene is a cracking, really fun um, scene. And there's this one beautiful scene at the beginning of um, Rilla of Ingleside where Anne has just returned from um, an overseas... No, sorry, this is the beginning of, of Rainbow Valley, which is the seventh book. Anne has just returned from an overseas trip. And Miss Cornelia is, like, catching her up with all of the gossip from the town. They live in a town called Glen St. Mary at that time. And um, it's just this hilarious scene which she goes and talks, like, not meanly, but talks gossip about, like, literally everybody in the entire town. And it's so funny. And yet it gets so much exposition across. It's such a beautiful device. Mm. Um, and it's just, I love her. And any scene she appears in is going to be a great scene. So I'm going for some really deep Montgomery cuts there. Yeah, you're showing yourself as a, as a true... True uh, Montgomery <laughs> expert. I'm, a, I'm truly of the race that knows Joseph, and that's a Miss Cornelia thing. So, <laughs> I think that's all we have time for today. If I don't get stopped, I may be here until next week. Um, thank you, Jimmy, for talking to me about Anna Green Gables. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> uh, we miss you, Michelle, again. Um Come we'll back soon. Come back soon. I know. I'm I'm bullying Jimmy so badly. She is. <laughs> All right. This has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. Um, again, I will ask you to please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. Um, any feedback or suggestions for future episodes would be great. You can drop us a line at our website, which is from thelighthouse.org, um, or through um, Twitter at MQ English, etc. Um, we'll see you again in two weeks. I promise not to talk about Anna Green Gables. Bye.